Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Happy Naked New Year! 2018 has whizzed by. So over the next hour, we'll be taking you through our favourite moments and the biggest scientific celebrations of the past year. I'm Izzy Clark. I'm Georgia Mills. And this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. People see the new year as an opportunity to pick up a new skill, and this year was no different. I tried to learn a different language and failed miserably. But cue Wiki the Whale, who was far more successful. Georgia covered the story. Hello? 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 This is Wiki. She's the first killer whale ever to be recorded imitating human speech. One, two. One, two. The point here is that we didn't want to teach English or a language to the killer whale. That's study author Jose Samorano Abramson from the Complutense University of Madrid. So why did they do it? Vocal limitation is a hallmark of human spoken language. It's very important in the evolution of human culture. The weird thing is that studies in, in other species has revealed that the ability to copy sounds from other members of their own species among primates is mostly unique in humans. Our ability to mimic is an important part of the development of our language, but it's largely absent in our closest cousins. Apes, despite their name, can't. It is seen in a few other species, famously parrots, and in marine mammals. Killer whales are particularly interesting because scientists have seen that different groups, or pods of whales, have different dialects, just like accents. And most biologists think that these dialects are acquired non-genetically and probably by social learning. To test whether this really was the case, Jose and his team saw if 14-year-old orca Wiki could successfully imitate new sounds either made by another killer whale, her calf Moana, or by a human. One, two, three... 
Wiki had previously been trained to imitate sounds, but these ones were selected to be completely alien to her usual repertoire. First, we found that killer whales made recognizable copies of novel sounds of killer whales and even human sounds or words. They did it quickly. So, we found they are flexible, open vocal learners. They have the capacity for vocal learning and for imitation, vocal imitation. Our results are also remarkable if you think that there was no extensive trial and error training the sounds were presented in the air and not in the water. So it was a very artificial uh, medium for her. Also, the sound production system is greatly differs uh, for, from humans. They use uh, another uh, vocal structure than humans. And so it's remarkable that she was capable of copying our, our human sounds. Audio analysis software was used to make sure the imitations really did match up with the target sounds, although some of them were better than others. One, two, three. <coughs> we support with these results the hypothesis that dialects observed in natural populations are learned by imitation, which means that these dialects can be seen as vocal traditions or cultures. If they have, like vocal traditions or cultures and dialects are important part of, of these traditions, uh, dialects can also serve like a social function, like accents, for example. Killer whales can differentiate where are the members of their group or from other families just by the accents, by, by the dialects, and they can enhance cooperation, for example. And what does this mean for our own treatment of these marine mammals? Jose points out if they do learn socially from one another, taking a member out of a pod can be more damaging than we thought. You know that if you capture, for example, a killer whale or, or other animals that relies on social learning, and some animals are very important for their social knowledge, you can have a, a lot of damage if you took or you kill the, the animals that, that have the knowledge, because different animals play different roles in the social structure. And the same reason happens with the killer whales that are in captivity. You cannot release a killer whale that is captive in the ocean because she relies on social learning. So you, you, really, you really need to teach that killer whale the special culture or dialects or, 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 or the way they hunt or whatever to, to, to introduce them, if it can be introduced. Wow, it just really shows we shouldn't be taking these animals from the wild, should we? That was uh, Jose Abramson and, of course, the superstar Wiki, the talking killer whale. Although I say talking, some of her efforts were better than others. My favourite part is when Wiki just isn't having any of it. One, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to be uh, having a conversation with Wiki for a while. <laughs> And throughout the rest of the show, we'll be taking you through our other highlights of the year. And so here's one chosen by Chris from a show we made all about allergies. As a hay fever sufferer myself, I get very irritated by sneezing all day, every day. But that's just an inconvenience. Other allergies can actually be really life-threatening. Chris Smith and Katie Haler tackled the topic. And first up, Katie went to see an eight-year-old, Dylan, and his mum, Micah. 
When Dylan was about 18 months old, he was in the garden with his dad and his brother, filling up bird feeders with peanuts and had an immediate reaction, which resulted in us ultimately being diagnosed with peanut allergy. How does it affect your day to day? It becomes the most important thing in your life. It makes your world very small to begin with. It's huge in its detrimental effect on family life. But luckily we have the resources and the kind friends and family to make it possible to, to do lots of normal things. Dylan, what's it like having a peanut allergy? Well, it's a bit hard because you have to check the labels of most things and at like a birthday party they have a cake with peanuts and I have to just deal with it and not have it. And we'll hear a little bit more from Dylan and Micah later on in the programme. Before that, we're joined by Pamela Ewan. She is a consultant allergy specialist at the Cambridge Peanut Allergy Clinic and she treats people just like Dylan. Why are those allergies so severe, Pam? Well, no one really knows why peanut allergy is so severe, but of the foods, it's the one that is the worst. And so it's the most common of the foods to cause very severe, sometimes fatal reactions. So it's a very bad one. What age does it tend to kick in at? Well, the average age is around two for the first symptom in a child, but it could occur at any age. And obviously that depends a bit on exposure. If you don't start eating peanuts till you're older, which is what happens now, probably that age of two is going to go up quite a lot. And in the population at large, a person picked at random, how likely are they to have a very profound peanut allergy? And are you seeing that number climbing, staying the same, decreasing? Well, 2% of children have a peanut allergy, so that means one in every 50. You could say almost nearly one in every primary school class. And has that changed? It was very rare to have peanut allergy until the 1990s. We hardly ever saw a case, and then there was a big increase in the 90s. It's gone up three or four more times since then. We haven't actually got the latest data, so we feel it's probably levelling off, but without hard data to show that. And when a person has a very profound reaction, what's actually happening to their body so that they have that collapse and anaphylaxis? Well, they're having this very widespread histamine release, which causes a whole range of different symptoms. But particularly in these severe reactions with peanuts, the main problem is very bad breathing. So they either get really severe asthma, even more often closing up of the lining of the throat. So they are basically being asphyxiated. How do you investigate them? We just put a little bit of peanut solution, an extract of peanut, onto the skin and prick it into the skin. It's not like a blood test. It's a very minor thing to do. And you get swelling and redness and itching. So you get a thing that looks a bit like a nettle sting. And that tells you this person is reacting to it. So you know they've got an underlying allergy. How do you then manage them? Well, the, the... Current management is avoiding the food, so avoiding peanut. Now, that's tricky because peanut is hugely widely used in the food industry. So it's in loads of things, not just the things you might expect, but it's added to unusual things. So it's very hard to do that. So that's the mainstay of treatment combined with carrying the medicines to treat reactions. And the one, the particular one for the very severe reactions is an adrenaline pen. And the treatment that you've been investigating is rather than treat the symptoms and rescue people, you're trying to stop it happening at all. Yes, so we've been trying something called desensitisation. And what that involves is trying to reprogram the immune response, switch off the harmful allergic response and instead induce a beneficial response. 
it's not usually possible to do it totally, but you can certainly down-regulate the bad response and up-regulate, increase the good response. How do you do it? So we start with very small amounts of peanut. It's given by mouth, taken every day, and every two weeks the patient comes back to our clinic. We increase the amount they're given, and then they take that same dose at home. So every time they have a bigger dose, they're in a safe environment with doctors and nurses. It takes 14 weeks to go from a very tiny dose up to taking between one and a half and two peanuts equivalent. It's not given as peanuts, but it's given as a measured protein, peanut protein. We'll hear how Dylan got on. There's quite a lot of peanut flour in there. Micah, you've got what looks like a chocolate mousse pot. And we open the capsule carefully over the mousse and then we mix it in. Good job. Yes. It's given us the freedom to engage in usual family life and go on holidays. And in the event that Dylan is accidentally exposed to peanuts somehow, he will be able to tolerate that much better than he could before. So you heard there sprinkling little bits of peanut extract onto something he likes eating to make sure he continuously presents the particular thing he's allergic to. But why does that work, Pam? Why does that downregulate the profound response he was having before? It is changing the regulatory cells that are in the system which control the production of this allergic or harmful antibody. So it's trying to reduce the production of that. And we can show that by monitoring these patients with our tests that the allergic antibody gradually declines. What stage are you actually at with this, though? Because we heard from Dylan, he's one of your patients. Is this something that people can routinely come and seek out from your clinic yet? No. Well, we've done a lot of research which has been published, which clearly shows the treatment is effective. What we're doing now is offering a sort of early access to treatment. We haven't got a licensed medicine, so we're well on the way to that, and we're coming up to the last step in the pathway. But in the meantime, we're offering this early access to treatment. We're doing it in the Cambridge Peanut Allergy Clinic, where we offer this treatment as part of a range of services we offer. Unfortunately, we're only able to do this privately because the NHS have not yet commissioned this and are unlikely to do so till we've got a full licence. So it's restricted, but it works on most people. Currently in our clinic, we're having success in high 90s, 95% plus patients, so pretty impressive. It's really exciting stuff. And until then, stop putting peanuts in birthday cakes, you monsters. (laughs) That was Pam Ewan from the Cambridge Peanut Allergy Clinic. Now, here's a very quick update on our Naked Scientists fundraising campaign. We spend about £150,000 every year making the Naked Scientists, and we're asking you to help us to raise a third of that to keep the show on the road. Now, what's extraordinary is that we've raised nearly 20% of our total but we've done that with the help of just 1% of you. Now, we know that some of you are of limited means and can't afford to help us, but we would like to appeal to those who can to consider what we do for you and what we give you as high-quality programming that we make with enormous love and effort and energy every week. Do please consider helping us by going to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate so we can afford to keep this show on the road and making great programmes for you in 2019. nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. Please consider giving us £10 for Christmas. 
This week, the Naked Scientists are revisiting the biggest scientific moments of 2018. And alongside some fantastic discoveries, this year we also bid farewell to one of our greatest scientists. Can you hear me? Our picture of the universe has changed a great deal in the last 50 years, and I'm happy if I have made a small contribution. So remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of what you see, and wonder about what makes the universe exist. Be curious. And however difficult life may seem, there is always something you can do, and succeed at. It matters that you don't just give up. On Wednesday, March the 14th, the world was shaken by the death of Professor Stephen Hawking. We celebrated his life and legacy with physicists, astronomers, close colleagues and anyone whose lives he had touched. Now, in 1988, Stephen Hawking released what was to be the seminal science book, A Brief History of Time. It has sold millions of copies in a variety of different languages. But for some of us, me included, it remained on our bookshelves gathering dust as we worry about not being able to understand the mind-boggling physics within its covers. So what exactly is A Brief History of Time all about? We heard from astrophysicist Dr Matt Middleton from the University of Southampton, who gave us a brief history of a brief history of time. I can't possibly do the contents nor impact of this famous book justice. A brief history of time was Professor Hawking's way of placing the wonders of the cosmos within reach of everyone with a curious mind. It has helped shape and inspire a generation of eager scientists and I count myself amongst their number. But in any case I'll try and break his famous book down by telling you about my favourite bits of the physics it explores. Here's a very brief history of A Brief History of Time. Stephen Hawking worked extensively on black holes, from the mind-bending nature of singularities to the establishment of black hole thermodynamics, before we even had any observational evidence that they existed. Now they're a mainstay of observational astronomy, from hot gas clouds pulled apart by supermassive black holes, to smaller black holes stripping material from a companion star. More recently, LIGO confirmed their presence from the detection of gravitational waves, as two spinning black holes collided and merged together. I'm sure Professor Hawking was also excited by the prospect that we might soon see a black hole for the first time. Telescopes all around the world are lining up to create the biggest telescope ever, the Event Horizon Telescope. The path of the light near a black hole is bent by gravity, resulting in a shadow that we can observe with this extremely high-resolution instrument. This gravitational light bending, the idea that the path of light can be affected by gravity, is presented in a brief history of time. It is a direct consequence of general relativity which predicts that both the paths of light and matter are affected by massive objects. It is now used extensively in the discipline of lensing, where massive objects or collections of objects, such as clusters of galaxies, can bend light around them. When they intersect, they amplify light so we can detect and study very distant objects. The study of distant objects connects rather nicely to other themes in a brief history of time, notably the expansion of the universe. By looking at how light from distant galaxies is shifted compared to light you might see in a laboratory, Edwin Hubble famously confirmed that galaxies were, almost exclusively, retreating from us. A notable exception is Andromeda, which will collide with the Milky Way in a scant 4 billion years. The realisation that the universe is expanding remains one of the most important in human history. Extrapolating backwards inevitably results in a point in time where all the universe's mass was contained in an extremely small space. The explosion of space and time from which the universe emerged was dubbed the Big Bang. 
Stephen Hawking worked extensively on this concept, and naturally it features heavily in A Brief History of Time. When we look at the residual light and radiation from the Big Bang, known as the cosmic microwave background, the fluctuations are so extremely small in any direction that we look, we know that the universe was once incredibly compact and expanded very, very quickly. When I say quickly, we can work out it expanded in 100 millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second by a factor of 10 to the power of 50, a number so large I don't even have time to say it. In fact, this inflation was faster than the speed of light. But don't panic, the expansion of the universe doesn't have to obey the speed of light. We think this inflation is down to something mysterious called vacuum energy, also called dark energy or quintessence. One of the things I really love about A Brief History of Time is that it's about more than just the science. It's also a story of development and our place in this beautiful cosmos. Stephen Hawking presents a human perspective throughout, navigating our movement away from a Ptolemaic view of the universe, where the Earth was at the centre, through the Copernican revolution of a heliocentric solar system, and to the point where we do not inhabit a special place in the universe at all. Whilst this may sound a tad bleak, we should take comfort in the fact that the universe may have been just right for life to develop, referred to as the anthropic principle. If the universe wasn't able to support life, then we may not have had the stars and galaxies, mankind may never have dragged itself from the primordial swamp, and, most upsettingly of all, the universe may have been denied minds such as Stephen Hawking's, or we may not have had a brief history of time at all. That was Matt Middleton there. And it's clear that Hawking had a huge impact, not just on the science community, but across the world. He supported science communication, the motor neuron disease cause, and he was a staunch supporter of the NHS. Plus, he used his popularity to raise awareness for political and environmental problems. Many of our listeners wrote in to express their love and respect for Stephen Hawking. And here are a selection of our favourites. A few months ago, I was hunched behind Stephen Hawking's chair, trying to fix a loose connection that was stopping him speaking. I found it and asked him if he could speak now. No, he replied, with a cheeky grin. He'll be greatly missed. My name is Jessie Parrott. I'm a third-year PhD student with cerebral palsy and a wheelchair user. I've said this many times before, but as a disabled kid who wanted to go to university and wasn't sure if I could, Stephen Hawking was a shining light of hope. He inspired me not only to do an undergrad degree, but to keep going to PhD level. Thank you, sir, and RIP. I'm a wheelchair user and I studied law at Cambridge in the 90s. I was also mistaken for him once. I'd gone to see one of his talks and arrived at the lecture theatre just in time. I was let in through the wheelchair entrance, not realising this led out onto the stage. The moment I appeared on the stage, the audience went completely quiet, thinking I was Stephen Hawking. It was only when I turned to face the front that the penny seemed to drop. A few minutes later, Stephen Hawking himself appeared. An amazing man. My name is Tassabi Mohammed, and I'm currently doing my PhD. And despite that being in genetics and not physics, Professor Stephen Hawking has been beyond an inspiration or a role model to me in my scientific career. He advocated for curiosity and for love for science, which are crucial in something as grueling and mentally challenging as a PhD. The world has lost a truly unforgettable genius and a beautiful mind. May his soul rest in eternal peace. And again, thank you so much to everyone who sent their inspiring stories about Stephen Hawking. 
As well as celebrating Stephen Hawking's life, we also celebrated a very special birth. July marked the 40th birthday of the first IVF baby, Louise Brown. Katie Haler made the show and joins us now. So, Katie, take us through some of the science. What exactly is IVF? Put very simply, it's one of several techniques designed to help people with fertility problems have a baby. So an egg from the woman is removed from the ovary, it's fertilised with sperm in a lab, and then hopefully an embryo grows and it's reinserted back into the woman's womb so that it can grow and hopefully develop into a baby. And so what was your favourite part about making this show? It was actually a massive privilege to talk to people who have been through IVF and had a variety of experiences. I think one of my highlights was in the lab at Bourne Hall, we were being shown the process of how IVF works sort of behind the scenes in the in the lab. And there's a machine that enables you to in not quite real time, but actually see the cells dividing. And I was just thinking, wow, that's that could well be a person, you know, Essentially, the first bit of life is happening before my eyes. It took me a moment to uh, to really kind of appreciate that. So, Katie, tell us what we're about to listen to next. You're about to hear a snippet from The Fertility Show, as well as speaking to loads of really interesting people. We spoke to one of the people who began IVF in the first place. This was Louise Brown. It was her 40th birthday this year. She's the first ever IVF baby. So Chris met up with her in Grantchester in Cambridge at a memorial service to unveil a plaque for Jean Purdy, who worked with Bob Edwards and Patrick Steptoe the IVF pioneers and as Louise puts it watched her dividing in a dish when she was first conceived. I was four years old um, just before I started school and mum and dad thought it would be best to just say that I was a little bit different to everybody else the way I was born and conceived because children can be quite cruel sometimes and they just wanted to be so that I was aware that I knew if anybody said anything that I knew about it. I didn't fully understand it, but they showed me the video of my birth, said that was how I was born, slightly different, and they sort of left it there. And I picked up the rest of it, listening to mum and dad be interviewed. If I had any questions from mum and dad, I could ask them and they'd explain it to me. Do you get a lot of attention? On special occasions, yes. Whenever my birthday has a naught or a five on the end of it, people seem to get excited. So I'm semi-used to it. <laughs> when did it sort of dawn on you how special the process that resulted in you was? I think I must have been between 12 and 14. It was mainly coming to events here at Bourne that sort of brought it home when you see all the children and people used to say, yes, Louise, and you're the very first. And also the press wanting to take pictures or interviews. None of my friends did that, so. I wondered when you said about 14, because that would coincide with sex educations at school and that kind of thing. I wondered if that was what began to hone it down in your mind. Yeah, definitely, because I can remember we had, um, when I was in senior school, I went into the science lab and um, opened the science book and there was a big picture of me in there and the teacher said yes Louise you're in this book and I was all embarrassed surrounded by test tubes and and bunsen burners and things like that so yes my son's 11 and he is aware now of the difference the way I was born to the way he was born and are you an only child 
No, my mum went on four years later to have my sister Natalie. She was born in 1982 and she was the world's 40th. 40th test tube baby. Yes. Do yes. you like that phrase, test tube baby? Because it doesn't, doesn't really involve a test tube, does it? I prefer IVF now. Everybody says IVF and I prefer that. Now, when you came to have your own kids, did it cross your mind at all or even before you had them? Um, you were born in a slightly special way. Might there be consequences for your own fertility? Did that cross your mind? I was always asked, as I got older growing up, would I consider IVF? Um, And obviously, yes, I would. But I never actually thought I would need to. And this is the problem. You don't think about it when you're younger. So, And then once I got married, um, two years later, we had Cameron. So I didn't sort of think about it. I just assumed, like most people do, that you've got no problems. And he came along naturally? Yes. Do you get asked by people about whether or not you're healthy? Because one of the worries that was expressed, even James Watson, DNA pioneer, was suggesting things like, we are playing God, we are potentially damaging the genetic integrity of the human race. Do you ever get asked that sort of thing? People do ask if I've had tests. I know I had a lot of tests when I was first born, um, but that's it. I haven't had anything since the day I was born. And you're otherwise pretty hale and healthy? Yeah, absolutely fine. I don't have any problems, conceive naturally. Yeah, I'm fine. What was the reaction of your parents to your arrival? Well, mum, I didn't, I don't think mum got to see me till the 26th of July because it was a C-section, so she was knocked out. Um, I think my dad, as I recall um, seeing on a video, I think he was shaken and had to give me back to the nurses because he was like, I don't think he could quite believe it. And when you come back to Bourne Hall now, because obviously the people who made yourself, a bit of a strange concept that, isn't it, <laughs> then set up Bourne Hall and have now helped tens of thousands of people since. What's it like when you come back? It's almost like my second home. Um, I love spending time with the people here. Um, it's beautiful grounds. Um, and also I've got really good memories of all four people that are unfortunately no longer with us there. So um, I love coming back. One of the staff at Bourne Hall said to me, it's quite unusual because when people come to have embryos put back, they often bring their mum and it's not normal that your mum's present at your conception. No, it's a bit weird. (laughs) My mum wasn't present at my son's conception, so... (laughs) Any parting message from anyone? If if you're an IVF child, then... We rock. (laughs) And um, if you're thinking of having IVF, go for it. Mum believed it would work. And there are now, I think, nearer sort of 8 million of us. So go for it. That was Louise Brown, the world's first IVF baby. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. This week, we're revisiting our most meaningful scientific moments from 2018. We've just heard about Katie's highlight, which was the anniversary of the first IVF baby. But now we're joined by another producer, Adam Murphy. What was your highlight of 2018? So... My highlight of 2018 was going to the Trinity Lab and Dance School and doing a piece all about what dancers go through physiologically, what do they deal with on a day-to-day basis. And this was your first programme, and you're, you dance quite a lot, don't you? This I do. This is a personal interest. Yeah, it's, it's kind of my biggest hobby, and 
to do that as my first show and to go out in my first proper interview. That was really cool. Awesome. Let's hear how you got on. There are huge demands placed on dancers in terms of physiological demands. If you just look at how they take their bodies to huge extremes, so in terms of joint range of motion, they really do need to get their legs up. I mean, probably I would say dancers need to be more flexible than pretty much any other athlete. But if you look at their upper body strength and some of their cardiorespiratory fitness sort of areas, then dancers, they're, they're less fit than many of their counterparts. Many sports athletes are actually fitter than dancers. But that's not because they don't need to be fit. That's just because the training needs to really support that fitness for the way in which choreographic demands are changing all the time. So do dancers experience injuries at roughly the same rate as other athletes? Dancers get injured a lot. So research has shown that 80% of dancers get injured in any 12-month period of time. That's an injury that takes them out of participation. 80% of dancers, that's that's a lot of dancers. And if you apply the same definition of injury and the same type of research to sports athletes, you'll find that dancers actually get injured more than many other sports athletes, including rugby players, you know, and they're killing each other. But actually, they get injured less, perhaps more catastrophic, but they get injured less than dancers. So it's interesting and I think that you know that one of the biggest causes of injury is fatigue and overwork. So that means we can do something about all those injuries in dance. Look at the training programs, apply some science and actually try and prevent those injuries. But what does this application of science look like? Well, this is the hand grip dynamometer. This is an isometric measure of strength. So we're looking at particularly the forearm here and the wrist. That's Scott Sinclair, lab technician for Trinity Laban's Dance Science Department, who had a test of strength for fellow naked scientist Izzy Clark. This is important, particularly within music and dance. One, for musicians, because they're holding instruments for quite a long period of time. So if they've got an imbalance in their muscle weakness, they're more susceptible to injuries. Exact same principle as dancers. They're working with the floor, they're working with partners. So if they have a weakness or an instability, you know, again, that could lead to injury as well. Okay, I'm so weak. I already know that. It's going to be so bad. You just want to hold it like this position and squeeze as hard as you can for three seconds. Okay, Okay. right, deep breath. Ready? Three, two, one, squeeze. Go, 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 one, two, three, and relax. Oh, gosh, I don't even know what that was. So three, zero. So it's measured in kgs. The most important bit really is actually just keeping it individual to you rather than comparing you to populations, for example. So that is all very helpful for dancers. But what about those of us who still struggle to clap in time? Back to Emma Redding. Well, one of the big things we're trying to do here at Trinity Laban in dance science is to measure the impact of dance on the health and well-being of other populations. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence, really, in the, in the press, in magazines and, you know, on TV about what dance can do. And dance is certainly more popular than ever before. More people are doing dance than watching dance, funnily enough. And, and why is that? What is it doing for them? And that's what we're trying to sort of measure. We know that dance can get you fitter. So if it's seen as a physical activity just like any sport, then it can potentially conquer various diseases like obesity, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, etc. What else can dance do? We, we measure the psychological impact of dance, and we found with some of the research projects we've done, we found that, for example, older people can increase their self-esteem, their uh, sense of identity and purpose and meaning in life through dance participation. Do you have any theories as to why that does that? Yes, Dance is not just a physical activity, it's a social activity whereby 
people are touching each other, they are interacting with each other, trying physically and cognitively to solve those problems together. So I think it's the, the social, the cognitive and the physical aspects of dance that makes dance a very unique activity and can produce the benefits that go way beyond sport. We decided to put this to the test and went for a dance class with Emma, who was more than happy to put us through our paces with a simple contemporary routine. Although how simple it actually was is up for some debate. I obviously can't tell my left and my right apart. We do one left, one right, I'm like, got it. Change direction, I'm like, no. I don't got it. <laughs> there are a lot of joints cramping. <laughs> and at the end of the somewhat successful class, had Emma proved us right? Were there real psychological benefits? Well, I can see you're smiling, so I think it's fair to say that, yes, there are lots of psychological benefits. I can see them now, and, I mean, what's happening essentially is those exercise endorphins that are released when you do any physical activity, they are being released right now, so you're feeling good about yourself, you're feeling happy. Everyone seems to walk out of a dance class with a smile on their face. Are there any particular groups of people who benefit most from getting involved in dance? No, I would say all types of people, no matter who you are, what you come with, you can benefit from dance. Every individual that has participated in dance, at least at Trinity Laban, has benefited in some way. And we do work with older people, we do work with people who have acquired brain injury, younger people with learning differences, people with physical difficulties. We have people in wheelchairs coming in with their carers. And it's really important for us as well to work not only with the, the people who have those differences, but their carers, their physiotherapists, occupational therapists, so that they can go out of, of the building and actually continue to, to be creative physically with the people looking after them as well. That was Emma Redding from Trinity Laban Dance Conservatory. So, doing dance at work, how was it? Um, it was quite difficult. I thought I'd be okay, like I've done salsa before, but contemporary was just so different. And I got so confused with my lefts and rights, it was quite stressful. <laughs> I mean, I've seen you on a Saturday night, I don't know why you're surprised, Izzy. <laughs> <laughs> now, another momentous anniversary of 2018 was the 100th birthday of the Royal Air Force. Plus, in June, the newest fighter jet, the F-35 Lightning II, arrived in the UK. So to celebrate these milestones, Chris Smith and I embarked on the maiden flight of our own airline. Ladies and gentlemen, flight F-35 is now ready for boarding. Please make your way to gate one with passports at the ready. Oh, excuse me, I think that's, I think that's my seat there. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please do, do come in. Thank you very much. Welcome aboard the Naked Scientist Airlines. Our cabin crew will soon be coming round to you with some complimentary refreshments. Our in-flight entertainment will consist of a journey through time to learn about the evolution of the fighter plane. Today we will be flying in a Concorde. Although the Concorde is not a fighter plane, many of its features were inspired by military aircraft, including its supersonic shape and its powerful turbojet engine. But, ladies and gentlemen, rest assured the Concorde is much more comfortable to fly on than fighter aircraft. We'll be cruising at an altitude of 60,000 feet and a speed of 1,000 miles per hour. In a few moments' time, we will be moving through the cabin to offer some refreshments. Oh, good. I am feeling rather thirsty. I'm right on cue. I think some snacks have just arrived. Champagne, sir. Caviar, madam. Haven't you got anything better than that? 
No. <laughs> the thing about um, flying is that you have to actually know how your aeroplane works in the first place. It is amazing that aeroplanes even fly. You think of a fully laden A380, for example, there are 800 people plus on there. So we thought we would do an experiment to explain how flight actually works and how aeroplanes and wings work. So who better to ask than kitchen science veteran and actually whiz at making science experiments to show how things actually work. And that's Dave Ansell. Welcome to the programme, Dave. Hello. What have you brought in? It's got a lot of gadgetry here. I've got a big fan and model wings and things. But start off thinking about how planes fly is how you stay up in the first place. Everything's being pulled down by gravity. And the fact you're not falling through the floor must mean there's a force pushing you upwards. And at the moment, you're achieving that by applying a force downwards onto the chair. And then Newton's laws mean that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So the chair is then pushing upwards with exactly the same force and holding you up so you don't fall to the centre of the earth very quickly. Right. So how does the wing of an aeroplane create that force, which then leads to the aeroplane being able to stay up in the air and combat gravity accelerating it downwards? So it must be pushing down on something. And the only thing a plane has got to push down on is the air around it. And the part of the plane which holds it up is, of course, the wing. So I have a model wing here, which is made out of a bent piece of card. And we're going to be wanting to see how the wing is affecting the air moving past it. Now, to not get any lift from a wing, you need the wing to be moving through the air. Now, to see that, while it's running around, it was really difficult. So instead, I've got a big fan, which I can turn on and produce air flying past the wing. Right. So we have a bent piece of card, which is curved in the shape of a wing. You have a screwdriver with a ribbon on it, which is going to reveal where the air is going. So talk us through what will happen when we put the wing in front of this large fan. What should we be looking for? In order to stay up, the wing should be pushing the air down. And we should be able to see that by the ribbon behind the screwdriver being pushed downwards. Now, I can understand how that will work with the bottom side of the wing, because the wing is higher at the front than the back, so air hitting the wing is going to be deflected downwards. So if you push the air downwards, it's going to push the wing upwards, as Newton's law tells us. What about the top of the wing, though? Does that contribute to the lift? If you get the aerodynamics right, which is an important part of designing a plane, then air will tend to stick to a smoothly curving surface. So with any luck, you will also get the top of the wing deflecting the air downwards and also producing lift. So you get lift from the top of the wing, and because you're pushing air down with the bottom of the wing, you get lift there too. Exactly right. If you fly your plane wrong, have you can lose a lift from the top, and that's what you call a stall. Let's do the experiment then. Now, this is noisy, everyone at home, so we apologise in advance. We had a go with this earlier, and, um, and it is a wonderful air conditioner, but it is noisy. Here we go. So Dave's turned on his large fan. So at the moment, I've just got the streamer, the ribbon, moving in the air, and it's just going horizontally. Now, if I move the wing down towards it from the top, you should see that that streamer is being deflected downwards, even though it's not actually touching the wing. Yes, indeed. So the streamer is nowhere near the wing. It's underneath the wing, but the streamer is curving downwards, just like the same shape as the wing. So there's obviously air being pushed downwards by the lower surface of the wing. Exactly right. And similarly, if we bring the wing upwards towards the ribbon from underneath, the air starts to stick to the wing. So the air going over the top is also being deflected downwards and so pulling up the wing. So if I let go of the wing, it moves upwards. It's producing lift. And... One last question for you, Dave, then. What about when a plane flies upside down? Because you've explained everything beautifully for an aeroplane flying the normal way, but when a stunt pilot goes upside down, the plane still flies. How does he do it? It's exactly the same principle. The plane is at an angle, so the air hits the wing at an angle, and it gets deflected downwards, so the air pushes the plane upwards. Are you saying the pilot basically has to modify his flying technique or her flying technique, so the plane is flying along, so the wing is still pushing air downwards? 
but it's just not necessarily the most comfortable ride. It Basically, the nose of the plane tends to be pointing up a bit more if you're flying upside down than if you're flying horizontally because they're designed to fly the right way up. High angle of attack, I think, is the correct parlance, isn't it? It certainly helps. Dave Ansel to the rescue. I just love that when we have an idea for a demo, we can turn to Dave and say, um, please, can you help us? What have you got lurking in your wonderful workshop? The shed of scientific dreams. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Izzy Clark. And this week, we're taking a look at the biggest science celebrations of the past year. Now, Izzy, it's time for your highlight of 2018. Oh, there are so many to choose from. There were definitely two that stand out for me. One, bizarrely, was visiting a water treatment site in Milton on what just happened to be the hottest day of the year. You say water treatment site. That's a nice way of putting sewage plant. (laughs) Why does that stand out? It was just really interesting. I've never really thought about, you know, what happens when you flush a toilet? Where does it go? Don't. And you were forbidden from the office for the rest of the week. (laughs) It was interesting, but my favourite moment has to go to visiting an astronaut training facility. So this was for a show all about whether we humans could colonise space. And part of a big problem with that would be living in space. And the launch itself is really dangerous. So I went to find out how astronauts and pilots practice for coping with the extreme conditions of flight. Hi, I'm Dr Alex Stevenson at Kinetic in Farnborough. Please explain where we are because I am very excited. So we're at the, uh, the, the human centrifuge facility in Farnborough. So at the moment, it's the only uh, human rated centrifuge we have. So it's a great big spinning arm. It's about 30 foot in radius, so 60 foot in diameter. And it's been here since uh, 1955. Primarily in the early days was to research the effects of these G-forces on, on humans. More recently, actually, to train our fast jet pilots how to cope with the forces they experience when they're manoeuvring their aircraft. And we also do a bit of space research. And uh, we've, in fact, done some training of sort of space tourists up to the International Space Station and, uh, and now recently doing some research looking at the respiratory effects of high G-forces. So basically, to put it very bluntly, it's a little pod on a massive metal arm that gets spun around very, very quickly. That, that in essence, is what it is, yeah. Now I can just see our first victim has climbed into the centrifuge. So tell me what actually happens once this giant arm starts to spin. So the actual arm takes a bit to start going, so it'll idle around the room a bit and then the motor will kick in. And how we've set it for at the moment, it will accelerate at 1G per second. So if we go to 3G, it will take two seconds to get up there. So very quick. And then it sort of sustains that G level for however long you want, really. For today, I think we'll just keep it to 15 seconds. Now, what the person in the pod feels is that there's a sudden increase in their weight. So moving their hands and uh, and arms around is much more difficult. And also because their weight of their blood uh, has increased, it will tend to head downwards. And what they might experience, depending on how low the blood pressure drops, is a loss of of vision. And that's caused because the eye has actually got an internal pressure to hold it in that spherical shape. And it's harder for blood to get back into that eye. So you lose your vision first. um, And once you've lost your vision, that's when you end up not getting enough blood to the brain. And and then you end up uh, losing consciousness. But hopefully we won't get that today. We'll just see a bit of visual loss, which is very traumatic and and, uh, easy to see. So does this mean I can have a go? You can indeed have a go. Oh my goodness. I better go and suit up. Oh, I shall take you through. Ah, how exciting. I'm really excited. Okay, so I didn't actually have to wear a spacesuit, which was rather disappointing. I climbed into the small pod, ready for a spin. Israel, hi, can you hear us? Yeah. Lovely. Uh, hello, control. 
And if you'd like to set us up for a 2.4G run, and we'll take that as our first taster for 15 seconds. Then if you're happy at 2.4, we'll take you off a few little steps beyond that. Perfect. 2.4G, 15 seconds. Standby. Initially, I'm sat upright, but as the pod accelerates around the circular room, I'm tilted sideways, the top of my head pointing towards the centre, and this causes the blood to rush down towards my feet, much like a pilot would experience in flight. And you can talk to us. Yeah, it's okay. I was expecting it to be, like, quite intense, but it's actually just like a massive roller coaster ride. Well done. In fact, by my fifth run, we took it to a maximum for a newbie like me at 4.2G. And yep, my vision disappeared. Yeah, vision started to go, but yeah, it just cleared completely. By tensing legs and stomach muscles, you force the blood back up towards your head and suddenly your vision clears. Hopefully. Whilst I recovered from the motion sickness, Alec explained why it's important to run these practices. So it's a medical thing, so we need to check that uh, the actual forces that we're subjecting our pilots and astronauts to don't cause them any physical harm. There's a familiarisation piece as well, really, because it's an unusual sensation that they wouldn't normally expect to have in in, in life. Particularly for astronauts, those sort of accelerations are are just really for space. Although it's not necessarily for that kind of acceleration, that chest-to-back acceleration training per se we can do, it's a sensation that they need to be familiarised with so that they can get on with what they should be doing, concentrating the tasks they may have to do uh, in, in the spacecraft. As you were about 4G... So we should be able to get you up to 9G with the, uh, the kit that we've got and some training. I don't think I'm quite ready for that just yet. Um, so the sensation in your body is so strange. Everything feels a lot heavier. As astronauts take off, their lung is al- almost feels so heavy. Does that any, have any health implications? Like, How can we even study that? It does have health implications. It does affect how your lung um, works. And obviously our lung is very important. It's how we get oxygen into our blood so one of the things we can we can measure how that acceleration affects the amount of oxygen you get in the blood and we've probably all seen a lot of clinical programs where we've seen a little clip that you get on your finger which is called a pulse oximeter which measures that percentage of oxygen that's the hemoglobin saturated with and we can do that and we can see that that is markedly reduced when we're under that sort of acceleration the good news is when we turn the acceleration off that tends to return to, to normal. As the lung is quite spongy, it distorts under its increased weight. What you end up doing is, is stretching the top parts of the lung, so the top, the parts where actually the, your chest and the, the bottom parts of the lung, which are near your back, get compressed. And that there is a, an element of that when we're just lying on our back, but because it's only one G, there's only a slight difference between the top and the back. And as we increase the levels of G, we just amplify that di- that difference. So we're concerned, I suppose, under GX that we get a, a part of the lung at the base that's got under so much pressure that it can't actually, it closes off and doesn't communicate with the atmosphere. And because it can't get air into and out of the lung, the blood that flows through it just doesn't pick up any oxygen. It contributes to what we call a pulmonary shunt. It's a proportion of the blood that we're pumping out of our heart that doesn't doesn't actually pick up oxygen when it runs through the lung. And obviously that mixes with bits that do pick up oxygen and just lowers out the average uh, saturation we've got. Now the issue with the top part of the lung is that it gradually gets stretched and stretched and like any mechanical uh, component will eventually cause damage if you stretch it too much. Um, a lot of the stuff that we don't suggest that the levels we're doing are, are, are safe but there is a degree of stretch in there and we need to be careful that if we've got some individuals who already have issues with that their lung that if we stretch any further are we actually then going to cause a, uh, an issue, a tear or something like that. So it is something we need to consider. 
Alex Stevenson there from Kinetic. So did you make the cut? Would you be a good astronaut? Um, I don't think so. I was very excited, but as soon as it finished, I was very queasy. <laughs> but what about you, Georgia? Do you have a favourite moment from 2018? I think it's fair to say 2018 featured a fair amount of wine tasting on our part. Yeah, we had the taste show in April where we explored different flavours. I then tried beer fermented with saliva. That sounded disgusting. Um... It was interesting, not the best drink I've ever had, I'll be honest. And then there was our punting show back in summer, which I'm now remembering very fondly in our freezing cold office. And this is when Chris and I punted down the cam when we were picking up and dropping off scientists along the way. And one such scientist was Alex Tom, a chemist who is also a wine enthusiast, and he taught us to do some fantastic experiments on some wine. I thought... uh an interesting wine here called a Riesling, Uh, that's the grape, Uh, and I chose it because one of the important constituents of wine is the acidity. That's what often makes the juicy feeling in the mouth uh, for wine, and I wanted to play with the idea of changing the acidity of wine and to see what the flavour changes as. Oh, so we can actually change the acidity, even though it's already been made, put in the bottle, we can... Tinker. The joy of chemistry is that we can play with some of these elements in a controlled fashion. Uh, (laughs) Let's try it as it is, uh, and we can comment on it, uh, and then I can tell you what the official tasting notes say. I love this. You can tell you're a chemist, Alex, because you've got a Pyrex beaker that you're going to drink this out of. (laughs) Actually, I got this at the International Chemistry Olympiad this year, so that was a a gift there. It's it's great. It's It's fantastic. It's It's literally a Pyrex like you would put on a a retort stand on a gauze and boil away in a laboratory, but it's got a handle on the side. So I'm going to put a little of this uh, Riesling in the glasses first. This is the unadulterated wine as such uh, and we'll taste that. Give it a swill in the glass and maybe get some of the uh, flavour out. I'd say that's yes. quite an acid wine. It is, yes. So uh, so I picked it because it's, it's a Riesling which is known for one of the most acidic wines. That can be good and bad People like acidity in wines because it means they keep longer, they age longer. But if it's too acidic, it just becomes sharp and horrible. So, uh, so this is a wine you know you might have with on a sort of hot summer's day like today, and the acidity makes it feel more refreshing. Very, very nice. So, can we can we see what happens when we change that acidity then? Right. Yes. So I'm going to uh, do a little modification of the acidity here. So I poured some of the uh, the wine into my beaker. And I'm going to add to it some bicarbonate of soda. Now, this is uh, an alkaline uh, salt, basically. It's just a standard kitchen chemical. But because we're on a punt, it's quite difficult to judge quantities and do this correctly. So into this wine, I'm going to cheat and add a little bit of a homemade indicator. So I made this out of red cabbage last night. Hopefully it won't change the flavour too much. Uh, But this wine is currently a nice sort of yellow colour. And if I add a bit of this, it should... uh, change to a startling pink colour hopefully there right. and I can use this indicator to tell me how acidic the wine is so this very pink colour means it's uh, pretty acidic at the moment right and it's, it goes bluer when it's more alkaline so it currently yeah. looks exactly. like rosé doesn't it? it yes exactly so I'm going to now add to it some bicarbonate of soda and hopefully that should fizz quite happily there 
and it's gone a bit darker purple. So if it goes, so we're looking for a purplish colour rather than a green colour. If it's gone too green, it's gone too alkaline. Right. <laughs> I mean, it feels like yeah. it feels like the the acidity may have changed, but we've also put in cabbage and a lot of <laughs> soda. So is this really going to tell us? Anything? That's a good question. So, so I, I chose this uh, partly because I had a red cabbage in the fridge last night. Oh yes, it's certainly changed colour now. It's gone oh, a sort of ooh, yeah. salmony, maybe very light light rosé colour rather than the bright pink. So it should now smell a lot less uh, as I. Yes, it, does, right. it certainly doesn't okay. smell oh, and, the same. Uh, yes, feel free to spit this out if you don't like it. <laughs> We've got a spittoon. There's a, there's a jug here, we can use this as spittoon. Mmm, um, go. <laughs> <laughs> that was grim. Oh, so, man. What's happened to it? So It's, <laughs> it's ruined. <laughs> That's what's happened. <laughs> that was rank. <laughs> so, so what... It's, um, it's taken... <laughs> Uh, all that acidity away. What we've now got is a effectively it, it, it hasn't wine. just taken the acidity away, Alex. It's yep. taken any semblance of wine yep. away. Yeah, yeah, and it basically tastes horrible at this point. Like drinking a washing up liquid or something. Yep. Like yes, yeah, so I may have added a bit too much of this, uh, but um, well, the flavours I can still get. You can still taste the alcohol in this, yeah. so it tastes like a sort of shot of alcohol, but without anything much else. And now the next experiment is to see if we can put the acidity back with a different acid. Yes. Okay. And so, um, and so, acidity is really, really prized in wines because it gives them flavour. Most of the flavours disappeared as well. And if you're in a really hot climate, the grapes tend to turn all that acidity into sugar, and they lose a lot of flavour. So, nothing lost. Uh, now, this this is an acid that I'm going to add, which is a different acid from the one we had before. So, most of the acid in the wine would have been an acid called tartaric acid, which I've got somewhere in here and malic acid you're adding what lysergic acid uh, <laughs> it's a bit different kind of acid uh, isn't it? lactic so this is stuff that builds up in your muscles when you uh, exercise too quickly and it's it tastes a bit like yogurt right well it's, it's gone the right colour again hasn't yeah, it it's gone a nice uh, nice pink colour it's again. back to I'm pink so we know to... it's more acidic again no. <laughs> let's um right Oh, sure. Go right. on, I'll give it a go. Um, go on then. Let's, let's yeah. It's pretty, pretty tart. <laughs> Still. Tart. Yep. Um, okay. The smell is back. It smells. Yep. The smell. The smell of is wine again. Yeah, I can smell yep. the wine. It's, ba- again. it's back yeah, to. Exactly, it's yeah. back to Riesling that we had before. I tell you what, it's a lot less disagreeable than <laughs> yep. than what we did with the first effort with the bicarb. Uh, it's like one of those um, when you those sweeties that oh, are those super sour. Yeah. So the flavours weren't destroyed by that red cabbage goop we put in. No, they no, were just, there. Just hidden uh, by changing the pH. So as you can see, you know, having a, a lower, a more acidic wine gives the flavours more a chance. But <laughs> yeah. You're really enjoying that, yes. George. That, that was a very fine. Would you like so, some yes, more? Yeah. Um, <laughs> a top up. Right, <laughs> yeah. So that's. I mean, that's what you can do. And of course, winemakers do this on a much more careful scale with their acidity rather than just pouring a few things together in a punt. I think one of the reasons this is my favourite show is because I'm just amazed nothing went wrong. We had to pick up and drop off scientists along the bank of the river, making sure none of them got lost. We had to make sure we didn't drop any of our recording equipment into the river. And also we were drinking. It's a miracle. (laughs) And there we have it. Thank you to everyone who's chatted science with us throughout the year. And thank you so much for listening at home. We'll be back next week where we're starting 2019 with a Q&A show. But until then, from everyone at The Naked Scientist, Happy New Year!
The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at atlassian.com slash teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.